Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is your host, Andy, and today we're joined by Jacqueline from the Senpasucha Collective. In our talk, we discuss organizing and the challenges that come around organizing, especially around training marginalized folks to be able to defend their own communities. Their work is focused in the Minneapolis area, so if you're out that way, keep an eye out and make sure to follow their work on social media. I enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. So take a listen. Jacqueline, thanks so much for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization? Well, your two organizations, really, and a little bit about yourself? Andy, thanks so much for having me. My name is Jacqueline. I grew up in occupied Gabrielino Tongva territory, known as Los Angeles. And I currently live on Dakota occupied lands, um, currently known as Minneapolis. My relatives are from various indigenous nations across Turtle Island, uh, from Mexico to the upper Northwest of the US. And as a young adult, I spent a lot of my time participating in mutual aid food projects, um, indigenous ceremony for protecting the water. My activism eventually led me to land defense as well as protecting water by means of ship and water access, as well as forest defense. I started a small Skillshare group in 2019 and called it Fem Empowerment Project. The intentions for this project were to create a safe space for queer, trans, Black, Indigenous people of color, Cutie BIPOC is the acronym, and to learn hard skills in traditional ways that were free of cost to people. The intention was to make it accessible In my experience, um, access to knowledge can often be gatekept by institutions or organizations, and sometimes it can also be expensive. I also believe that the more that people have what they need, whether it be resources, knowledge, skills, the more empowered they are to be self-determinant and take care of themselves while dismantling and surviving systems of oppression. Um, Sempasuchio Collective became a name change as an intention to make it more clear to the public eye that it's an Indigenous-led project that focuses on Indigenous sovereignty from food to land and well-being. Sempasuchio is Nahuatl, or the Aztec way to say marigold, which is a flower that's native to what is now known as Mexico. Um, And that flower is medicinal and also represents our ancestors. Shifting back to the focus of medicking, after the first evening, after the murder of George Floyd, I went out to medic and realized there weren't any other street medics of color like myself and decided to shift the focus during that time to support BIPOC communities to have access to more formal street medic training. That's awesome. We've actually done a bit of discussion on our Twitch channel about getting basic medical care and knowledge accessible to people. Now that you say that, I also don't know of any or I've not met any street medics of color so I, I think it's a really interesting angle that you've, you've taken on this subject. Now, this idea of the term street medic, I think, has evolved quite a bit just based on the way police forces changed over the last, uh, even last five years, I think. Not in necessarily just in that way, but also in the way it's kind of understood in the mainstream culture. I think with technology, we've become more aware, at least uh, white people have become more aware of police violence. And um, there's a huge influx in first-time protesters. So that, that puts a lot of stress on the systems that support protests, whether that's street medics or anyone else. And one of the things that I've seen, and I'm sure you have as well, is a lot of information getting dumped on the internet as protests arise. And it's not always accurate information. So I'm curious a little bit about your thoughts about this, as well as kind of this weird paradigm where 
information is easily accessible. There's tons of people getting more involved. Conversely, there's more need for accurate information and for street medics that don't have their skills undermined by like digestible internet content. Um, I'm glad you brought this up. <laughs> um, the internet has definitely become an interesting place. There's lots of opinions and information, so it could definitely be convoluted and hard to figure out where, where do you go for the information. I try to share information our, on our page, our Instagram page from medics that I've either worked with or know through community nationally. I also noticed that small medic groups have popped up here post-uprising, and I have conflicting feelings. I feel like it's a good thing, you know, for people to to organize on their own, but it also, it's like, you know, not sure where, the, what, who they are. Their qualifications. Yeah, exactly. So I think having professional medical experience is important caring for the public in dire situations, but I also feel like the more people have access to taking care of themselves and community is important as well. So it's like, where's finding the crossroads in those. And I would say that def- that people deferring to those in community who have the most experience as well as like good relationships with those in their field and practice is a good start. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with the internet, there's sometimes the, the illusion of qualification or connection to a community because it'll, you know, some angry, frustrated 20 year old or kid or whatever, they want to do something in their community because they feel like they're helpless and they don't know where to begin. So they start taking information that they find on the internet that they've never applied. And maybe it's, I don't want to name a city in particular, but you know, such and such city street medics or something. And there's no real way to check to see whether or not that person is qualified Mm -hmm. and whether or not detangling the quality of information from the delivery content quality can be really difficult. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think also it's like hard to find, I feel like a lot of people that do organize and like, I, I am a, I'm a millennial, I'm not a Gen Z. So my organizing is probably more off the internet than on the internet. So that's a big thing too, right? It's like a lot of that organizing is not online. So how do you find those people? So I I think that's also a, a good thing is like maybe not finding all your information on Instagram, but maybe finding local groups, you know, like frontline medics. I know there's folks on the East Coast that do medic trainings. I can share a link later with some information for people to go to. But yeah, I think connecting with people who have been doing it for a while is a good way to go. Absolutely. Now, I want to focus specifically on your organizations, Mm -hmm. which is why you're here. And on this idea of training up folks uh, in their community to help their community, those folks that are most under the the pressures of capitalism and who in many ways have the most right to access this knowledge in order to defend their own communities. Could you talk a little bit about how, what this looks like in practice? Like how, how do you actually say this is an organization, this is what we do and get in front of the right people? Get in front of the right people in like which way? Uh, like, like we were just talking about this idea of like on the internet, it's very easy to like stand as like this, you know, community. I'm just going to pick on like Portland, like the Portland street medics or whatever. And like, how are you detangling that from the fact that it is predominantly white kids that get into this type of work, whether that's because of access or privilege or whatever it might be mm-hmm. and getting in front of the, the folks that you want to get in front of whether uh, the people whose communities are being under attack the most. Thanks for um, clarifying. Yeah, I think that's tricky. And I think that's like a part of um, allies building relationships with more marginalized communities. Because I think for me, I think I could be a little hard headed where I'm like, I'm just working with 
queer people or people of color, but at the end of the day, like there are people who we are trying to build relationships. So I think that that's, that's a big part of it um, is like building trust and people who do have more, more capacity. Maybe they have less trauma and they're able to, to medic or they have, you know, more access to wealth or what, or education, whatever, however, and how do they, how are they able to have a relationship with people who maybe don't have as much access to those resources in a way that's like safe um, for people who aren't familiar with like being in the medical world. And I think my take on it was, you know, I went to school for EMT like over a decade ago, and then I retook it a few years ago. So just kind of have kept that information those creds like relevant for things like protesting and just like community care and community work, direct action. I think that I'm like a particular case in like what I'm doing, but I guess I'm still trying to like figure out those answers as I go. But I think, yeah, just like having people build, I think building relationship across communities is really the big thing to work on. And for people who do have the skills to be able to find ways to make it accessible and basically just communicate with people who, you know, they're trying to support. Yeah, there's no easy answer. And I was hoping you'd give me one. So, <laughs> so I, I really like this idea of decentralizing like medic knowledge. And I, I find that it's one of those areas I think most people are curious about but they, it feels really intimidating because it's like, well, that's, that's medical care. That's all this stuff that's like way outside the scope of um, the knowledge that I have, which may be like, you know, you went to school for psychology or English or something. And it's like, oh, you want me to like be able to seal a chest wound uh, or not even like seal a chest wound, but just like keep this person stable until like they can get to better care. <laughs> it, it sounds really intimidating. And it's an interesting concept and it's really interesting to see the types of folks that go this direction when that's not their career path. When you start these trainings, is there a, are there certain um, commonalities that you see with the folks that kind of walk in the door and are interested? That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, sometimes you have people who just want a medic and who are all about it. And then there's, yeah, there's people who are just, they are caregivers in their community or they just see things and they just want to have more information and be able to do something when the situation arises. So I think it's a mix of people. And my from training people who don't have medical experience at all, I make it really clear that they aren't walking away with like accreditation or anything like that. But it's basically them having more knowledge to be able to address situations. Because the more that people know a little bit, so say like, you know, if someone gets a sprain or like someone is having um, some anxiety, like if more people know about what's going on, then they could at least work on that as a group, as a community, not just like straight on, like teaching people how to put on a tourniquet. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's like, also you have to practice those skills um, to keep them relevant and to be confident in even doing them. So I feel like my approach has been a little slower of kind of just giving people the baseline, like, you know, if you're in a situation that's heightened, what do you do? Scene safety, kind of just noticing what is going on, having awareness about different types of things that you see. Um, and I think that's like actually a, a big part of street medicating is like situational awareness and, and management of like emergency situations. So like starting with a good foundation like that, I feel like is also a safe way to like share with more people information, but also not like 
telling people like, okay, you're like going to be this like street medic that can just do like any, anything. So yeah, just being honest yeah. and real about it. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. Like you say that and I'm thinking about like what I just said about like stealing a chest wound, like statistically that's like never going to happen. Uh, hopefully at least. But there's a lot of things that do happen that you need some very basic rudimentary skills. And that can be not just physical, but psychological support mm-hmm. and understanding how to, to gauge, you know, like you said, situational awareness. You know, I think a lot of folks, when they hear street medic, they think of stop the bleed and that type of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with those skills. They're obviously important, but it's much more likely that you're going to need other skills. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about kind of where you think the focus should be on building the knowledge that folks that want to get into street medic work should know. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I saw was um, communication and also consent and care work um, going in. And I think that people who are in, you know, I saw a lot of young people last year, well, I guess almost two years now, <laughs> at the beginning of the, of the uprising, there's a lot of really young people, um, high school age, youth age, and, you know, have a lot of energy, but also I'm not sure if they've ever been in those type of traumatic situations. So also like if you're a medic, basically I've seen some medics just kind of go in and start treating people. But if you're, you know, 16 and, and I'm going to explain a little bit of a triggering situation for some people, but if you're 16 and you got shot by a rubber bull in the head and you're bleeding, like that's pretty scary. And so, you know, putting yourself in that person's shoes and being like, Oh, I'm this young person who had this traumatic event happen to me. And there's this person who doesn't look like me, who I never have met before, who's just like going towards my body. So, you know, creating, um, explaining those situations to people who want to help and just like thinking about how do you approach a situation? And so thinking about how, how you would want to be treated and how talking about consent, you know, like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm here to help you. May, may I do this? You know, may I, I'm, I'm going to like put pressure on your head and just communicating really well. I think that when you're in emergency, when people are in emergency situations, it's very easy to just be like, got to stop the bleed, just going to go do it. But I think that it doesn't address the lack of consent that people of color and marginalized people um, experience the access to their bodies or not being respected in ways um, in community and different or in, in society, not community, but you know, systemic oppression looks many different ways. So I think, yeah, just really coming from a place of consent, asking for consent and having care and empathy before going in is like, I feel like a big takeaway and something I really focused on when I opened up training. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's something where the fact that you guys are working on trying to provide more representation and lived experiences in the street medic community by bringing in these new folks into Street medics uh, will address a lot of those issues, which I think is really great. So I'd read an interview with you actually around the challenges of balancing being involved in direct action and the mental health tolls that working around protests come with. And that's something even a few of my friends who are journalists have also spoken about as well. And that's also a reason why when I was younger, I was more involved and now I just can't. So I, I get it. Now, I don't think people like... It's such an interesting time because we have social media, we have like people going on Instagram live with uh, like what's going on in a protest when there's stuff going on, even violent protests. But I I don't think that image, it's almost sometimes dangerous because 
you see it on you know your phone or whatever when you're scrolling and you can be like oh that sucks and then kind of just keep going it almost like allows people to become desensitized by having it such freely accessible and it erases the ease of which the state can basically like remove your rights as a citizen and your autonomy as a human and like just being completely dehumanizing to me i i think it's one of those areas that you know you're talking about like supporting people as a street medic and helping people and that's something that the protesters themselves will feel but also the people that are supporting them feel and i don't know if you could talk a little bit about if you feel comfortable your own experiences as well as how this might play into how street medics should be trained moving forward in the future i think part of going into it is like understanding the impacts of trauma and trauma-informed care i think that as a young person, I didn't really think about that. And I think I just had like a lot of energy and just kept doing it. And after a certain amount, I would realize that I was like not able to show up in a good way or, you know, kind of later on would realize how much that it, it affected me. So I think there's also, and, and I mean, it's in our society of like, you know, capitalism wants us to just be going all the time and, and be at like maximum output all the time. So I think changing just generally and left communities just like changing that expectation that we don't need to be going full speed to be important to be doing good work to to be an ally whatever people are doing that they feel called to do and i think that like taking care of ourselves goes a long way and that if we even with medicking like if you that seem like with scenes scenarios and situational awareness like the first thing is like making sure you're okay and i think when you talk about medic situations, you're just like, oh, I'm okay. Like I'm not getting shot at or, oh, I'm okay. I'm not in the middle of traffic, but I think we can extend that understanding to like, I feel grounded in my body. Um, And then talking about how do I, what does groundedness feel like? And just really leaning into, yeah, trauma and like groundedness and like that type of language. Cause I think that, you know, healing all that type of stuff. Like, I think that it's not as like a, attractive work to be, you know, thinking about self-care and about how we take care of ourselves. But I think it really does go a long way. I'm not sure if I ans- answered the question. Yeah, you did. It took me a very long time for myself to start to recognize the signs of burnout. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like, I was, I'm always someone that's five minutes early. And then when I notice that every day I'm five minutes late, like I'm like, okay, <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm pushing myself too far. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of introspection to, to start recognizing those signs, especially when you're not somebody. Um, and I, I think this is something that's very common uh, or more so common in uh, communities that are marginalized. Like my, my own parents are immigrants. So it's always like you have to work twice as hard as everyone else. Like there's that, that like gets set in your brain when you're really young and it's really hard to go against it. Um, where it's like, I know I'm tired, but I just have to keep going. Mm-hmm. And I, I think especially uh, like when you're doing organizing and support like street medic work, you tend to think this individualist capitalist thought of if I don't do it, nobody is going to do it. So I need to be there or somebody else isn't going to get the support they need. And that's like fundamentally against what we're trying to do when we when we're supporting each other and organizing. We have to let our guard down enough and feel vulnerable enough to say, I'm okay with stepping back. It's my turn to step back. Somebody else will do it. And I don't need to explicitly say so-and-so is going to cover the work that I would otherwise be doing. That's really difficult. Yeah. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. 
As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. Speaking back to an experience from like years ago, I um, did a, a bike trip from LA to Central America with people of color. And that was like the, I would say that's the thing that radicalized me because we were, and this is a tangent, but we were doing projects down in Mexico and Central America where we all had roots and doing things like permaculture land projects, working with indigenous folks, doing ceremony, protect the water and um, bike technology. I think that what I had learned was that if one person wasn't able to do something, there was just other people who were able to step in and that we were all collectively working together. So that experience had radicalized you by seeing the ability for community to organize without explicit, everyone has eight hour shifts or something like that. Yeah. Or like everyone has skills that are important and they're different. And sometimes there's overlap, but there's not just one person that's like leading everybody. There's huge psychological, I don't want to say repercussions because that sounds negative, but impacts of having that experience, that relationship with other people, that expectation that you don't need to do it all or that it has to be codified, that people cover you when you're tired. This idea of like, well, I worked eight hours and five minutes, so you have to work eight hours and five minutes or whatever it might be like that we can kind of delineate these things in a way that's meaningful and maybe not necessarily constructed explicitly, but can exist because of our communal respect for one another. I think that's really powerful. And I, I think the whole point for me is with this whole conversation is that when we talk about doing support work in general, especially around protests, we have these different kind of angles that we, we experience these things through, whether it's if we're involved or we're following accounts on social media or the support team for people that are out and putting their, their bodies on the line. While it's very easy to, and I say easy loosely, to say, okay, we're going to learn this very explicit physical understanding of how to help people. Under capitalism, it's very difficult to unpack the psychological component. Like we use street medic or street medics in general, kind of think about this idea of like support as this very physical thing. That's that's kind of the, the vector to communicate and connect with people that are going through the experience of protesting, uh, whether it's the first time like a 16-year-old kid who's never seen anything like it, or the 35, 40-year-old millennial who's been doing this since Occupy. And those those, uh, psychological experiences are very different because of their lived experiences. And this is where I think there needs to be more conversation around how how do we provide support because people walk away with PTSD, they walk away with a lot of psychological damage from that physical component of seeing your government, even if you've always said like the government doesn't care about me, to actually physically see them attack you and your friends for saying like, I think everyone is equal is really damaging psychologically. And I think that's one of those things, it's easy for people to say, I agree, Mm -hmm. but the space between I agree and experiencing it are very big. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about any more about this psychological work that needs to exist or does exist. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. I think it might be different for different people around around different margins, because I think 
yeah, I think as I got older and had more lived experience, I, I actually was able to see race systemic racism and see ableism happen. And so the more I experience those things, it's like, it's, it's hard to, to feel like you're a valuable person and then under systems oppression, you're not seen that way. So I think really leaning into really leaning into the people you're around and kind of dismantling those things in your own community is a big thing. Um, if we're trying to do this in our communities, I mean, with the system as a whole, then I think starting small is, is an important way to go. So dismantling whatever isms within yourself, you know, what, what are we, what are we intaking? If we're reading like black feminist theory, um, if we're reading things about Basically, I, I feel like following the lead of people who are the most oppressed helps people have an understanding of how they can survive oppression and also understand people who have less privilege, privilege in them, like how they, what their needs are um, and be in solidarity with them. I think that, and I'm still trying to figure that out too, because I feel like my work has shifted more into healing work and finding ways for people to have access to um, to better care that's like alternative medicine or just a better, more dignified life. So I feel like I'm kind of scattered with this question. I'm sorry. No, it's it's a difficult question. And it's one that I don't, I, I honestly, genuinely hadn't really thought about until mm-hmm. um, fairly recently, like this idea of like, we, ha- we have support systems in place around psychology and mental health and wellness and dealing with PTSD, but they're still structured under like, how capitalism organizes and like the goal isn't to make you better it's to make you functional and those are two different things that doesn't give you space to really deal with your issues and i feel like that's why a lot of people never stop going to therapy is because it doesn't address the real problems because it's still like based in like a capitalist understanding of how to deal with things a very like reductionist understanding of how to deal with these very real and complex issues Mm -hmm that like highlights or underscores the fact that like we need alternatives. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think rest and having people being able to listen to you and like help you process things. Like if you don't have access to therapy and just like the basics, you know, getting, getting proper sleep, getting proper food, things like that um, go a long way. But sometimes when I am having a hard time with PTSD, I'm like, what do I need to do? And my therapist, like, you just need to rest. Your system is just going through a lot. And I think, yeah, just leaning into resting, letting our nervous systems have a break can probably go a long way or does go a long way. Yeah. And you've brought up this fact that you're, you're focusing more now on wellness mm-hmm. and care, which I think is really interesting. Uh, I, on your website, you list as general skill sharing. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about this? I, I think you've kind of answered where it came from, but if you may, maybe want to talk a little bit deeper on that. Sure. It started just with like wanting to share hard skills and soft skills in traditional ways. I teach people, you know, how to use power tools or how to make elderberry syrup. So the range of skills is pretty wide. I have noticed up here, we have been dealing with line three. Um, So that's been a big topic in the last year and a big issue. And as the campaign is winding down, there's definitely a lot to focus on in terms of care work. And I feel like since almost a year ago, well, actually a year ago, I started doing less trainings and focusing, started focusing more on getting people body work or access to herbs, access to like non-traditional or like Eastern medicine for care. And for me, that's felt like 
it's important for people who are leaving the front lines or leaving land defense projects and to be able to support their systems because it seems like from my experience, things continue to happen. And so we have to really take care of ourselves to be able to continue to do this work. And so I'm trying to create accessibility for that type of care to happen and also for it to be normalized to say like, oh yeah, like we can take care of ourselves and like rest. And that is a part of being able to do this work. Some of the other things I do is like, yeah, less on, on like care work, but more, um, I'm trying to think what I've been doing lately. Yeah. But like medicine making, you know, building garden beds, getting people access to seeds and growing food and things like that. So it's pretty adaptive and kind of based on like the seasons and also what it feels like the need is, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of really cool mutually projects in Minneapolis. And sometimes I don't always see things that are accessible for queer trans BIPOC folks. So a good example is I started uh, last week, a maple syrup harvesting camp. And I think that kind of ties into um, land sovereignty and environmental justice to be able to have people who are indigenous and black to be able to like be on the land and learn how to do those skills like foraging. Yeah. So I think what I do is really adaptive and intuitive and based on like what it feels like the people around me need and don't have access to. That's awesome. For folks that are listening and they want to support your work, where can they find you on social media or Venmo or whatever it might be? Thanks for the plug. The Instagram is Sempasuchio Collective and the Venmo is at BIPOC Skillshares. Awesome. So we'll definitely tag you guys in this episode. Jacqueline, thanks so much. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. 